So do you think forgiveness is a good thing or not? How many of you would say forgiveness is always a good thing? How many of you are not sure? Um, I think one of the factors that may tip us one direction or another on that question is uh, which side of the hurt we're on, like in this drama we just saw. Okay. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. <laughs> when, we're, when we're on the receiving end of mercy, why, forgiveness seems to be the highest possible virtue. But when we are the ones who are hurt, forgiveness can seem like a gross miscarriage of justice. There are all sorts of reasons why we don't want to forgive, and one is because it seems to deny the seriousness of the sin. We find ourselves thinking, if I forgive this person, then it somehow trivializes the thing that they did to me. And some offenses are trivial. They ought to just be you know, brushed off, forgotten, and let them go. But many are very serious, and, and it seems somehow wrong to trivialize those things by forgiving the offender. Uh, if, uh, if you were sexually abused as a child or abandoned by your parents, if uh, your spouse has had an affair or a coworker is spreading malicious gossip about you, uh, boy, do we just let it go and that's that? It, it seems to somehow minimize the seriousness of the sin if we forgive it. Another reason why we don't want to forgive is because it seems like it lets people off the hook too easily. We have a legitimate concern that forgiving our offender will perhaps open us up to deeper problems later. An employer who chooses not to fire the employee who embezzled money from him wonders, you know, am I setting myself up for more losses? Uh, a wife who lives with an abusive spouse uh, has a legitimate concern about whether he's going to beat her again. Peter suggested to Jesus maybe he should forgive someone up to seven times, and I'm guessing that if uh, we have the same person commit the same serious offense against us, we're going to get tired of it long before seven. Uh, a third reason might be that we're reluctant to forgive because it feels like it places too much responsibility on the victim. If we're the victim asking us to let go of our pain and our sense of justice, desire for justice, it feels like it's putting too much responsibility on the offended person rather than on the offender. It's sort of like coming across a, somebody who's just been in this horrible car wreck and they're laying by the side of the road bleeding and you say to them, wow, Mac, you know, that looks pretty serious. You better get that fixed. To say to, to someone who has been seriously hurt uh, by another person, uh, you need to deal with that, it's all your responsibility, uh, might even be asking the impossible because those memories and those scars perhaps will never go away. Forgiveness puts too much responsibility on the victim and we just don't feel like we can do it. And then at bottom, we sometimes don't want to forgive because we really feel like it's unjust. Uh, we have the sense that when there's been a wrong committed, that wrong ought to be punished. And if it's not punished, there, there's something, you know, the scales are unbalanced. And if the wrong has been committed against us or against one of our loved ones, then our sense of justice is sharpened to a razor's edge. We know exactly what ought to be done. We want to punish that person who hurt us, and we think we can do that by refusing to forgive them. So instead of forgiving those who offend us, we try some other alternatives. And here are a few things we'd rather do than forgive. Uh, we'd rather demand repayment. 
The old law code said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And there are some offenses where restitution is possible and makes sense, like when the neighbor kid puts his baseball through your window or their dog digs up your garden. You know, that, that makes sense in those situations. But most sins against us, uh, there is no repayment for. What repayment would make up for the person who split your marriage or seduced your daughter or ruined your reputation? And our society is so mixed up, so confused on this. We are the most litigious society in the world. We have more lawyers per capita than any other country. And, uh, and people are always going to court to sue people. You hear the word punitive damages, and you, and you hear these huge sums of money being bandied about. Uh, and somehow our society thinks that that makes it all right. So the, some of the parents whose children were killed in the Columbine massacre, are suing the school district and the police department as though a truckload of money was somehow going to make up for the loss of their kids. Repayment is often just impossible. So a second alternative to forgiveness would be revenge. Get even. Pay them back. Last February, uh, I was uh, on a plane, came across this uh, article in the Wall Street Journal. This was dated February 13th, all right? And... Uh, here was the title of the article. The headline said, Roses dead, violets are too, fish heads coming right at you. The subhead uh, said, If you've been jilted lately, the revenge industry has some interesting Valentine gift ideas. Here's some excerpts. Michael Baumgartner, a human resource consultant from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, operates revengeunlimited.com a website he started in 1997. In the past week, this is the week before Valentine's Day, Mr. Baumgartner and his friends have spent 18-hour days boxing up dozens of long-stemmed roses, black, dead, wilted, and lopped off, all of which cost as much as a fresh bouquet. Payback.com customers can send dead fish, 1999, melted chocolates, 24.99 or hygiene help gift packs, $11.99, loaded with mouthwash, deodorant, and soap. Some take a more spiritual approach to payback. People have a heightened sensitivity this time of year, says Samantha Kay, owner of the Voodoo Boutique, an online and mail order business. The Ultimate Revenge Kit sells for $79.95 and allows customers to name their own curses. If voodoo just won't do, HawaiianHijinks.com will send out a revenge stone that promises to deliver an unusual streak of bad luck to the recipient. It's based on local Hawaiian lore that says volcano gods will wreak mischief on anyone possessing a volcanic stone removed from the island of Hawaii. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Get revenge. Get revenge. There's also a story of a man who got bit by a dog, which was later discovered to have had rabies. And uh, so the man was sent to the hospital, and tests showed that he, too, had contracted the deadly disease. This was before uh, medical doctors had discovered a cure for rabies. So the doctor had the unpleasant task of informing this man that he had better get his affairs in order. Uh, the dying man sank back in his bed. He was just in shock for a few moments, and then he summoned the strength to ask for a pencil and paper. When the doctor stopped in a little later, uh, he found the man writing furiously, and he said, oh, this is good. I'm, I'm pleased to see you're working on your will. This ain't no will, the man replied. This is a list of all the people I'm going to bite before I die. 
somehow revenge feels much more satisfying than forgiveness. But the problem with revenge is that it reduces us to the level of the person who hurt us. It makes us no better than they are. And moreover, it usually begins a spiral of escalation that ultimately has no end, as we've seen amply illustrated by the Hatfields and McCoys over generations of retaliation in Appalachia. A third alternative to forgiveness is to nurse the grudge, nurse it into bitterness and hatred. A grudge is like a hard stone in your soul. It's something you can squeeze as hard as you'd like to squeeze your enemy, but without the social consequences. No one needs to know that you're hating that person. We begin to resonate with the scripture that says, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. But this too turns out to be a poor alternative to forgiveness because nursing grudges corrodes our soul and our disposition. It makes us angry, hard, cynical, bitter people. If we continue to harbor that grudge, it can raise our blood pressure, it can put ulcers in our stomach, it can destroy our digestion, it can give us a nervous breakdown. Heart attacks don't just have physical causes. Some of them have to do with the emotional and spiritual heart as well. A fourth approach we might take in an effort not to have to forgive someone is just to ignore them. Maybe we'll try to come to a place of peaceful coexistence. We'll go our way, we'll let them go their way, they can live their life, we just hope our paths don't cross too often. When we're in the same room, we'll do everything we can to avoid looking at them, making eye contact, or even acknowledging their existence. We'll just pretend they don't exist. Against all those alternatives, the Bible is very clear in its insistence that we forgive those who have hurt us. We might think, for example, of Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Or Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Or Jesus' rather pointed remark in Matthew 6. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So what does it mean to really forgive someone? What is the essence of of forgiveness. Well, let's go back to the story of Joseph in Genesis to get a handle on this. Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob, the youngest of 12 brothers. When he was a young man, he was sold into slavery by his brothers who were jealous of him because their dad loved him best. <clears throat> he endured many hardships in Egypt, including being imprisoned for a number of years. And then eventually his ability to interpret dreams uh, led him out of prison and into Pharaoh's court where he became second in command only to Pharaoh. And then the famine that God had foretold through Pharaoh's dreams struck, struck Egypt and all the surrounding area, including the area where Joseph's family, Jacob and the rest of his brothers, were still living. So they came down to Egypt to buy grain because Pharaoh had wisely taken Joseph's advice to store up the grain during the seven good years prior to the famine. So Egypt had some grain. The government actually had the grain to sell. It was selling it back to its own citizens and selling the grain to others as well. So these... Uh, these Hebrews came down to Egypt to buy grain, and they presented themselves to Joseph to ask for the right to buy it. The brothers didn't recognize Joseph because he had changed so much. He'd been a young boy, young, young man anyway, uh, when he was sold into slavery. And uh, he's changed a lot. He's now dressed like an Egyptian. He's speaking Egyptian, using an interpreter to talk to them. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. 
he has a tremendous opportunity here. <laughs> a tremendous opportunity. Think of all the time he had spent in uh, slavery to Potiphar, all the time he'd spent in prison, all the opportunity he had had to nurse that grudge, to think of what he would do to his brothers if he ever had the chance. And now he has the chance. <laughs> but he doesn't say anything to them. He uh, lets them buy grain. He sends them off. In fact, he returns their money to them secretly. But a few years pass or some time passes. They run out of grain. The famine is still severe. They have to go back to Egypt. And this time, after toying with them a little bit, Joseph decides to reveal himself to his brothers. We pick up the story of Genesis 45, verse 1. Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. You can well imagine this has been a huge emotional issue for Joseph all these years. And now there's this wave of emotion that just sweeps over him as he confronts his brothers and reveals himself to them, and perhaps even in that moment is still deciding what he will do and how he will treat them. Uh, he invites them to come a little closer. <laughs> and I bet this is a nervous time for them. <laughs> because these are the guys, <laughs> these are the ones who, who did this to him, and they know, you know, he's got them. <laughs> right there, right where he wants them. And I'm sure never in their wildest imaginations had they ever thought they would see Joseph again under these circumstances. They come closer, and he says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. There's still no clue what he's going to do. And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. So they send back, they go back, they get Jacob and all the rest of the household, they bring them on down, and they live in the land of Goshen. Years later, Jacob dies. We pick it up at Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? <laughs> His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being accomplished, the saving of many lives. In Joseph's response to his brothers, we see a pattern for what true forgiveness is. And the first step, perhaps somewhat paradoxically, the first step in true forgiveness is to acknowledge that we've been wronged. You sold me into Egypt. You intended to harm me. It's not like, oh, you didn't realize what you were doing when you sold me to those Midianites who were passing by. You, know, you intended to harm me. In fact, you wanted to kill me, and if it hadn't been for Reuben, you would have. You intended to harm me. Not all offenses require forgiveness. Some are so trivial we can just brush them away and they're gone. But the hurt that requires forgiveness is personal, and it's unfair, it's unjust, and it's deep. It's deep enough that we are wounded 
It's some place in our soul. And when we're hurt in that way, we can't just ignore it, pretend it didn't happen, pretend it wasn't serious. To treat a serious offense as though it is not serious is to set ourselves up for psychotherapy later. True forgiveness does not make light of serious wrongs. So the first part is acknowledge who's hurt us, what they did, and acknowledge that we are really hurt. We are wounded by that. The second step is to recognize that the wrong has created a debt. Wrongs create obligations to make them right. A traffic violation requires a ticket. Uh, violating curfew results in grounding. Sin results in death. Joseph tacitly acknowledged this when he said to his brothers, don't be afraid. <laughs> they knew that he had something against them. They knew, and he acknowledges with this, don't be afraid, that they owe him big time, as we would say today. They had every reason to be afraid. He could have had them killed, and in some sense it would have been just, because that's what they wanted to do to him. So as we think about the people who have wronged us, we need to acknowledge that they owe us something. And figure out what that is. What do they owe you? Calculate that in your own mind. And say it to yourself. You know? Because of your affair, I should divorce you, like in this drama. Because of your negligence, I should sue you. Because of your betrayal, you owe me an apology. Because of your actions, you owe me some money, whatever it is. Every offense creates obligations, a moral debt that has to be paid. What do they owe you? So first, acknowledge that you're hurt. And second, calculate what they owe you. And third is the crucial step. We choose to release our offender from that obligation and to cover the debt ourselves. Joseph formally released his brothers from their debt by giving them a new land in Egypt, land they did not deserve. And he said he'd provide for them grain for the next five years. We saw last week that the only way an offense can be really forgiven is if the offended person bears the cost of that moral debt that is owed. So Joseph, the second in command, gave some of his land and his grain to the brothers who had hurt him so deeply. I will provide for you there. God has done that in Jesus Christ. He has paid the penalty himself that we owe him. We have to agree to pay that moral debt that the person owes us for their offense. We have to relinquish our right to hurt them for them hurting us. We have to give up our right to an apology. We have to say, they don't owe me anything, not even an apology or repayment or any punishment that we have justly imagined for them. Now, one way to do that is to realize that all sin is ultimately against God. That's, that's what uh, Joseph does here. He says, am I in the place of God? God is the ultimate judge. And we need to let him be the judge and not take on ourselves this role of, of the ultimate moral judge for other people. A second thing Joseph does is, helps him to forgive here is he rests in the sovereignty of God. He says in verse 5, Don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was not you who sent me here but God. You intended to harm me but God intended it for good. In retrospect, see, in, in hindsight, Joseph is able to look back and see that God has used their sin, as grievous as it was, to bring something good out of it for his whole family. And so he can rejoice in that, and that helps him forgive. We can't always see the good things that God is going to do, but we can always trust that God is sovereign 
and that in all things, even really evil things that people do to us, God is at work for the good of those who love him. A third way to move toward forgiveness is to try to be understanding. I remember being impressed by a banner in a church hall that said, Jesus looked past my faults and saw my needs. That's very good because many of my faults rise out of my needs. So I want not only his understanding, but I want to pass his understanding on to others. When I understand what motivates some people when I can see their hurts and needs underneath their offensive behavior, then it helps me be a little more forgiving. Uh, a personal example, about nine or ten years ago, I was deeply wounded by a person who um, undermined my self-confidence, my position in the church, um, my reputation. And uh, it just seemed like every time this man opened his mouth, everything he did was calculated to hurt me. And he was very good at it. Uh, so good that I'm still dealing with some of the scars from that. It was very easy for me to take the first two steps here, <laughs> to acknowledge that I had been wounded and that he owed me something. <laughs> but how in the world was I going to forgive? How was I going to let that go? Well, part of my healing was to recognize that he had been sexually abused as a child by his father, or maybe it was his brother, I'm not sure now. And his wife also had been sexually abused as a child. And those experiences made it very hard for him to come under the authority of anyone, especially someone the age of his father, as I was. That understanding, those experiences, don't excuse his behavior towards me. But they do help me understand a little bit where he was coming from and why he might have acted that way. It made my job of forgiving a little easier. We can never fully understand someone and why they do the things they do, but it helps just to make the attempt to try to be a little understanding, to realize there is a reason behind every action. How do we know when we are truly forgiving someone? We will know that forgiveness has begun to take root in our hearts when we can think of that person who has hurt us so deeply and wish them well. Really want the best for them. To be able to pray with integrity, God bless them, not curse them. If you don't feel that yet, then you still have some work to do. I want to encourage you to do business with God this morning. I know because many of you have told me that there are a lot of hurts here, a lot of very serious hurts. It probably would not be an exaggeration to say that almost everyone in this congregation has experienced some serious hurt in your life that, that calls for forgiveness. Have you done that? Have you let it go? Unfortunately, I know that many of you have not. You've tried all the alternatives, but as a result, you still carry around that bitterness, that hardness, that hurt that was caused by that offense. For some of you, it's been years. Uh, for others, the blood is still fresh. But folks, regardless of when it was, now is the time to do something about it. Now is the time to begin to let it go. I have to tell you, I, uh, as I was preparing this message, thinking about this congregation, 
I'm extrapolating, of course, from the people that I know, the people who come to my office, who sit in the chair and weep over the situations in their lives. And I'm extrapolating from the few that I've heard from to the conviction that they're not alone. That many of you, many of you are dealing with deep-seated bitterness, anger, resentment against people who have hurt you very badly. Some of you are estranged from family members, a spouse, a child, a parent, a brother or sister. The, the natural human relationships that God intends to be the very closest are fractured, poisoned by hurt and hate. Some of you left other churches to come to this church because a pastor or somebody else in that congregation, a brother or sister in the Lord, said something, did something, didn't do something, didn't say something that hurt you, and you left. Some of you have changed services in this church that you worship in, or you sit on opposite sides of the, of the sanctuary because the person that you have that <clears throat> against is still in this church. And still others have left the church altogether because there's been an offense here. The body of Christ, which Jesus prayed would be one, is fractured, divided, broken. And, and some of you have lost your best friends over some deep hurt. So now you bear the pain not only of, of that offense, but of the loss of their love and friendship. Brothers and sisters, you have it in your power to do something about this. Will you do it? I don't pretend that it's easy. And forgiveness is a process. It's not an instantaneous thing. When the hurt is deep, it takes a long time. But I want to ask you today, to make a commitment to God that says, I will begin the process. I will start today, Lord. I open my heart to you. I release that stone I've been clutching. And I beg you to come in and soften my heart. Lord, break my will if you need to. Make me putty in your hands. Shape me. You're the potter. I'm the clay. Make me like your son, who could pray as they nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Will you start today? And I want to say to you, as clearly as I possibly can, if I am the one, or if Barbie is the one, who has offended you, please, please come talk to us. Tell us our sin. We want to be one with you.